If you have a Bible, please open it with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be starting this morning a sermon series through the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. Today we'll be in chapter 1, looking at the first 25 verses. While you're turning there, I wanted to tell you about my friend Amy. Amy has an interesting hobby. She loves to go to amusement parks and ride roller coasters, which is a fairly normal hobby. Maybe some of you share that hobby, but what makes Amy unique is that at the part of the roller coaster where there's a camera to take a picture of everyone as they're screaming their heads off and having fun, Amy likes to pretend that she's asleep. And so she ruins everyone else's picture, but she gets an awesome picture, and she posts these on Facebook, and they're absolutely hilarious. Uh, Because everyone is screaming and and their hands are in the air and she's with her head cocked back and her mouth wide open and her eyes shut pretending to be asleep. And, And the reason that pictures like that are so funny is because that's an inappropriate reaction to a roller coaster. And I think that the same thing is true about the way we read the Bible often. Often we read the Bible in an inappropriate way and come away with an inappropriate reaction. Maybe some of us have a habit of just reading the Bible as a, as a religious obligation or a task that we need to check off of our list every morning. And that's an inappropriate reaction to God's Word. Because God's Word isn't just any other book that we can read, but it's, it's a revelation of who God is in all of His glory and splendor and majesty. And, and so reading the Bible as a, as a mere task to be checked off of our list is an inappropriate reaction to who God is. At the same time, I think we commit just as, just as inappropriate a reaction when we read the Bible and we make it all about ourselves. When we go to the Bible and we say, okay, well, what does this verse mean to me? Or what does this say about me? Or where am I in this story? That's an inappropriate reaction to the Bible because the Bible's not about you. And the Bible's not about me. The Bible is about God. It's about His glory. It's about His splendor. It's about His purposes in the world. And so when we read the Bible about us, we're taking it out of context. We're distorting the purpose that it was intended for. The entire Bible exists and was given to us to give us an astounding picture of who God is, the one true God. So the book of Genesis exists for that same reason, to give us a picture of who God is. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and as such, it offers a foundation for the entire Bible. Today we'll read the first words written in the Bible, and we'll see that from the beginning, the Bible is completely about God. And that's the way that God's always designed the world to work, to center not on our desires or our purposes, but on his desires and his purposes. And so, so what that actually means for us is that the way that we find true meaning and purpose in our life is not by, uh, not by doubling down on our own desires or our own purposes or our own goals, but rather by centering our life on God and on who he is. And so even this morning, if you have absolutely no interest in who God is, this is a message that applies for you. Because if what the Bible says about God is true, if he really is that amazing and really is that astonishing, then he's worth laying our lives down for. 
And if you are a Christian, then I want to encourage you to look at God's Word today, that in God's Word to see a fresh picture of who God is, and that in light of that, we will be renewed to lay our lives down with fresh vigor and energy. And like I said, that's the point of the Bible from the very beginning, including the book of Genesis. Uh, like I said, we're going to be studying the book of Genesis together over the next few weeks. If you haven't already, make sure on your way out to pick up one of these Bible reading plans. This is going to help you guide, uh, guide our study through the book of Genesis. So make sure you're reading these throughout the week. And then on the back of this reading plan is a short introduction to the book of Genesis, which gives you some helpful background information that I think will really aid your study of the book of Genesis. The point of Genesis is that, is that God created the world to center on himself, and that our lives find their best, most fulfilling meaning and purpose when we center our lives on God. The book of Genesis has two sections. In, in chapters 1 through 11, we see that God created the world with himself at the center, and he created us, he created the human race, to also center around himself. But, but his people, again and again, rebelled against God, and in our sin, chose to follow our own desires rather than to follow God's law. That's the first section of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11. And in the second section of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, we see that God responds to sin by launching a plan to redeem a people for himself out of the world cursed by sin. And that starts with one man named Abraham and his family, and it finds its climax thousands of years after the events of Genesis in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point of Genesis is not you or me. The point of Genesis is God and his glory. When we read Genesis, I want to encourage you to not just look for examples to follow or life lessons to glean, but look to it for a revelation of who God is and how he has designed the world to work. And that is true from the very beginning of Genesis where we'll be today in chapter 1, the main idea that I want to drive home to you today is that God created the world by his powerful word and for his glorious name. God created the world by his powerful word and for his glorious name. And we'll see this truth spell out for us as we read Genesis 1 by looking at four main truths about the creator revealed in Genesis 1. Number one, the creator is God. Genesis 1 starts with the bold, unapologetic declaration that the God of the Bible, the one true God, created everything in the universe. And these are the radical first words of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when did this take place? The Bible starts with those three words, in the beginning. And unfortunately, these three words have drummed up a lot of distracting controversies among Christians throughout the years, where some Christians take these words to mean that the earth is very old, maybe as old as billions of years. And other Christians take these words to mean that the earth is very young, maybe even as young as 6,000 years. And, and I know that there are people in this room that believe both of those positions, and that's okay, because that's not the point of Genesis 1. The point of Genesis 1 isn't to tell us how old the earth is. The point of Genesis 1 is to tell us about the God who created the earth. 
And so whenever we study the Bible, including the book of Genesis and including the New Testament, the most important question that we can ask isn't what does this say about me or what does this mean to me, but rather what does this teach about God? And I think there's two attributes of God that just leap off the page from this verse. First of all, he's eternal. When Genesis 1.1 says that he that, that in the beginning... It's not talking about the beginning of God because God has no beginning. It's talking about the beginning of the world. And before the world was, there was God. God has no beginning and he will have no end. He has always been and he will always be. He is more dependable and given than the ground underneath of our feet. He is eternal. But, but even better, he's involved. He's involved in this verse and in the rest of Genesis 1 as a creator. And then in the rest of the Bible and in the rest of Genesis, we see him involved as a king. He is intimately involved from the beginning with the beginning of creation and the course of creation. He's not, as some people believe, a divine cosmic watchmaker who set up creation and is now just letting it take its course. No, he's intimately involved in creation from the very beginning beginning. And so if you don't believe in God, this is actually a problem that you have to deal with. Where did all of this come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Where did all of this come from? And philosophers have called this the idea of a first cause, that, that God existed before all creation, and he is the cause that pushed all of creation into being. Even if you believe in a Big Bang or, or something like that, where did that initial matter come from? What made it react the way that it did to create a perfect universe suitable for human life? Where did all of this come from? Genesis 1.1 gives us an answer. The first cause is God. The creator is God. And he created the world by his powerful word and for his glorious name. But Genesis 1.1 doesn't just tell us that God is. It tells us who God is, starting with his power. And that's the second truth about the creator I want to share with you today. Number one, the creator is God. And number two, the creator is powerful. God is mighty and powerful, and self-sufficient, and unchanging. Read with me Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 2 uses some strange phrases that we might not be familiar with today. The phrases like without form and void or darkness over the face of the deep or, or hovering over the waters. Well, what does all that mean? Well, you see, Genesis was written by a man named Moses who becomes an important figure later on in the Bible. And when Moses was writing Genesis, he was surrounded by many other cultures, countries, and tribes. And each of those countries, cultures, and tribes had their own creation narrative. They had their own understanding of why there was something rather than nothing. And in a lot of those creation narratives, they used this same kind of language to describe the dark, watery chaos that their, that their tribal gods actually had to battle with and struggle with, and that's where creation came from. Creation came from that struggle. In many of those stories, their gods actually lose that battle, and that's what creation comes from. Creation actually rises out of the carcass of a dead deity. 
deity. But, but Moses uses that same language not because he's borrowing from those creation narratives, those false creation narratives, but rather because he's mocking those creation narratives. In those other stories, the gods are struggling against the watery chaos. But in Genesis 1 verse 2, God the Spirit is effortlessly hovering over and ruling the chaos. He is more powerful and he is bigger than all the so-called gods of the nations. The God of the Bible is the only true God. The God of the Bible is the most powerful God. And God creates all things by his word. In verse 3, you'll notice throughout this chapter this beautiful pattern. And God said, and it was, and it was good. And God said, and it was, and it was good. God creates all things by his word. He says, and it is. He declares something to be, and it starts to exist. It obeys his voice. Now, we can create things too. We can take wood and turn it into a chair. Well, I can't, but maybe you can. Or, or, or many of you work in construction or contracting, and you can take concrete and steel and other materials and turn them into a building. Or, or we can take chicken and rice and beans and turn it into a burrito. But God does not create like that. We can create by taking pre-existing materials and turning them into new things. That's not how God creates. God speaks out of nothing. He just says trees, and they are. He says light, and it is. God creates by his powerful word and for his glorious name. And the story gets even more astounding in the New Testament when God's word takes on flesh. John chapter 1 mirrors Genesis chapter 1 by starting with those same three famous words. In the beginning was the word. And then John 1 continues in verse 14 and it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so everything that Genesis 1 says about God's word is true about God's Son. God created all things through His Son. And this reveals in the first three verses of the Bible the doctrine of the Trinity, which might seem like a, a big theological concept to many of us, and it definitely is. We shouldn't approach it without fear and trembling, but it simply means that there is one God, there is only one God, and that God has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of those persons is fully God, equal in glory, essence, power, and nature, and distinct in terms of their roles in, in working with creation and their relationships to one another. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed here in Genesis 1. Verse 1 shows us God the Father creating the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 shows God the Spirit hovering over the watery chaos, ruling over creation. And verse 3 reveals God the Son through which all things were created. From the very beginning, God has existed in Trinity. And this is actually very good news for us because it means that God is completely self-sufficient. A lot of well-meaning Christians have said things throughout history like, well, God created because he was lonely and he needed someone to love. And while that makes us feel nice and warm inside, it's actually not true. 
God had no need for me or to you to love. God existed from eternity past in a perfectly loving Trinitarian community. God has all the love and community and friendship and fellowship that he needs in and of himself. And God's self-sufficiency jumps off of the page throughout Genesis 1. He needs no help to rule over the watery chaos. He needs no relationships to avoid loneliness. He needs no pre-existing materials to speak creation into being. He needs no counselors to help him create with wisdom. God is perfectly self-sufficient. He is mighty and powerful, and that's good news for us because it means that you can trust him completely with anything. I would love to help you with all of your problems, but I have limited time and limited energy and limited health and limited resources. I will fail you. The people sitting around you, your friends and your spouses and your fellow church members and our pastors will fail us because we all have limitations. But God has none of those limitations because he has no limitations. He is perfect and mighty and he has everything he needs in and of himself. And so because God is powerful, he can help you. And because God is good, he will help you. That's the third truth about the creator we can find in Genesis chapter 1. The creator is God, the creator is powerful, and the creator is good. God creates good things because he himself is good. Again, I want to draw your attention to that pattern throughout Genesis 1. And God said, and it was, and it was good. Out of God's goodness flows a good creation. And God's goodness is revealed in his wisdom. Read with me in verses 4 through 10. And as we, read these, as we read these verses, just take note of God doing a work of orderly separation. He's separating one thing from another and making a world that has order. And that's his wisdom. Read verse 4. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. God does a work of orderly separation that leads to an orderly world. He separates the light from the darkness so that we can have day. He separates the waters from the waters so that the sky doesn't fall down on us. He separates the sky from the land and the waters from the land so that we can have a place to live. And that's his wisdom. And we see his wisdom even in making things like evening and morning. We see that God created a 24-hour day out of his wisdom. Why? Not because he needed rest or rhythms, but because he knew that we would. Even, even our orderly world is seen in things that we take for granted like gravity. You didn't wake up this morning wondering if gravity was going to work today. You knew that it would. That was a given. When you were driving to church today, you didn't worry that the sky might fall down and crush us all because you can depend that the laws of nature will always work the way that God designed them to work, and that is his wisdom. That brings us a lot of peace in this world. 
God's goodness is revealed in his wisdom, and it's also revealed in his creativity. Read uh, with me at verses 11 through 25. And again, as we read this, just let your imagination run wild to picture the great, incredible, startling diversity of these things that God is creating. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, each according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, just think about the incredible, astounding, creative diversity that God is speaking into being. God created the sky, which human painters and artists have been drawing inspiration from for centuries. And God created it. He spoke it into being by his powerful word and for his glorious name. He didn't have a color palette that he used to create the sky. He's inventing those colors out of his fullness, out of his goodness, out of his creativity. God is the most astounding and beautiful artist that the world has ever known. And he's creating the stars and the sun and the moon, these beautiful celestial bodies that are so powerful and strong that if we just look at the sun without proper protection, we'll be harmed. And God just creates it with a word. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of stars that are taken by satellites, but they're absolutely beautiful and absolutely astounding. And that beauty flows from God's own fullness, God's own beauty. And he's creating plants. Just think about all the different textures and patterns and smells and sensations and growth patterns and ecosystems that God is creating just with a word when he rises plants out of the ground. And he's creating animals. Again, an incredible diversity and so much textures and, and species and instincts and ecosystems and, and, and furs and colors all just 
coming from God's beauty, coming from God's word, by God's powerful word, and for God's glorious name. Everything from bears to barnacles, from sparrows to seaweed, God is speaking into being out of his fullness. Creation is good because God is good. There are a lot of people today that say that creation or matter is evil and that we'll find meaning when we avoid it or when we remove ourselves from it. Some Christians believe this wrongly. Some Buddhists believe this. But the Bible has a different approach. The Bible says that creation is good because God himself is good. God was pleased with creation. He makes a declaration about it again and again. It is good. God was pleased with creation. We should be pleased with creation because creation is good. But that creates a problem in our minds because while God says the world was good at the beginning, it doesn't look so good now all the time. And if the world really was created so good, why has it gone bad? Why are there natural disasters like the tornadoes that, that took the lives of over 20 people in Nashville this week? Why are there illnesses like cancer and coronavirus that we have to worry about that take human lives? Why have animals turned violent to take the lives of people and of one another? Why has God's good world gone bad? Let me assure you that it's not because of any defect in the Creator but rather the rebellion of his creation. And that leads to the fourth truth about the creator I want to draw your attention to today. Number one, the creator is God. Number two, the creator is powerful. Number three, the creator is good. And number four, the creator is worthy. God created the world to center on himself. We see that in the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Speaking of Jesus, God the Son, it says, All things were created through him and for him. Christ is both the source of creation and the purpose of creation. Why did God create? So that his glory would be known. God created by his powerful word and for his glorious name. Also in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 speaks about the doctrine of creation. And it says that when we look at creation... It's plain to us that God exists because all of this had to come from somewhere and wherever it came from, that being had to have been really powerful. And so Romans 1 says that God's existence is made plain from creation. And it says that the wrong response to that is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to suppress the truth that we know to be true about God from creation. But the right response in Romans chapter 1 is revealed in verses 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's two right responses to God's creation. To honor him and to thank him. And verse 28 in Romans 1 puts it a different way. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Acknowledging God is the proper response to seeing him as creator. And acknowledging him doesn't just mean mentally agreeing in your head, like, oh yeah, I believe God created the earth, that's fine. Uh, I don't have any problems with that. That doesn't contradict my life at all. No, acknowledging that God is creator means that we have to stake our lives 
on that truth. It has to mean that we live in a way that if that isn't true, our lives are ridiculous. We acknowledge that God is creator by centering our lives on him. And like we saw in Genesis 1, that's why God created the world, by his powerful word and for his glorious name, to center on himself. God is the source of creation and the purpose of creation. He created all things, including us, as we'll learn in the next few weeks, for the glory of his name. But mankind, starting with Adam and Eve, who we'll meet in the next few weeks as we study the book of Genesis, and every human after them, has sinned against God, rebelled against God, choosing to make our own desires supreme instead of God's law, choosing to make our own goals and priorities and desires our chief authority rather than God's word that created all things out of nothing. And in so doing, in our sin, we aren't just harming ourselves, we aren't just harming the people around us, we're literally upending the order of the universe because God created all of this to center on himself. And as a result of that sin, the world was thrown into a curse. Of course, when we upend the order of the universe, the consequences would be disastrous. Of course that would be the case. But God did not want to leave us abandoned in this good world gone bad. And that's why he sent his son. And Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we've all failed to live. He stepped into creation, took on a human nature, and he always acknowledged God. He always centered his life on God. He always deferred his own desires for the good of others. He made God's purpose his only purpose. His life was completely centered on God's, unlike mine or unlike yours. And Jesus was murdered brutally, not for his own crimes, because he didn't have any. Jesus was murdered for our crimes on the cross. And he stayed dead for three days, but then he rose from the dead as a bold declaration to creation and to Satan and to sin and to us and to the watching world that he really is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he really has power over all things, that he really was an acceptable sacrifice for sin, that he really was righteous, and now he is ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's coming again to recreate the world, to make the world good again like God designed it to be. And our response to that ought to be to trust him. Because the only way to escape this cursed world and to find ourselves in God's new recreated world is to be recreated ourselves. Our sin has distorted us. Our sin has broken us. But when we put our faith in Christ, God puts our lives back in order and he's recreating us. He starts the work of recreating us to be fit to live in his new recreated world forever. Recreated people in a recreated world. And so this good news about Christ is not just a get out of hell free card. It's actually reconciliation to God. And reconciliation just means making a wronged relationship right again. And that's what Jesus came to do, to take our wronged relationship with God and to make it right again. And, and making that relationship right again doesn't just mean that our sins are forgiven and we can go on living however we want. It means that we have to center our lives on God, by God with God's help, 
by God's power, for God's glory, we center our lives on God and on who he is. The gospel is not just an invitation to be forgiven of your sins, although it certainly is. It's an invitation to put your life back in the right order with God at the center. It's an invitation to to stop letting God or church or Christianity be an item on a checklist and start being the source and substance of your entire life. So I want to encourage you today to make God the center of your life. And you'll notice if you picked up the sermon notes handout, there's two blanks on the end of that. This week, I will work to make God the center of my blank and my blank. I'm going to share a few practical ideas, ways that you can practically make God the center of your life this week. And I want you to prayerfully consider writing two of those things down, two of those things that you'll apply, really apply this week, starting with your faith. Many of you today here are not Christians, or you might be realizing this right relationship with God where he's at the center doesn't describe my life. And if that's the case, then friends, You're not a Christian, which is a bad place to be, but you know it, and that's a great place to be. And you can make God the center of your faith. You can put God at the center. You can admit that you have nothing good to offer God, but that Jesus had good things to offer God on your behalf. You can believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that you can repent of your sins and find forgiveness and life in him. And so if you're not a Christian today, your response to this astonishing God of the Bible ought to be to put your faith in him. Make God the center of your faith. Make God the center of even the most mundane things in your life, like your commute. Many of us spend upwards of an hour, maybe even more, in a car or on the metro or in in Ubers every day. What if you redeemed that time? What if you offered that commute time back to God and spent it by reading his word or listening to a good sermon or, or by memorizing scripture? Scripture memory and prayer are two things that you can always be doing. And one of the most helpful disciplines in my life is extended scripture memory. To not just memorize individual verses throughout the Bible, but actually to memorize longer portions of the Bible, maybe even entire books of the Bible, which sounds like a daunting task, but it's something that all of us can do. I don't have a very good memory, and I've been able, by God's grace, to memorize longer portions of scripture because of God's help and because of discipline. And so if you want to memorize a long passage of scripture, which again, that's something you can do on your commute. It's something you can do while you do chores, while you fold laundry, while you do the dishes. And I use a simple process. I read a verse 10 times and I discipline myself to look at every single word on the page. So if I were to memorize Genesis 1-1, I would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I would do that 10 times and I would close my Bible, and I would say it out loud ten times. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's my scripture memory verse for the day. The next day, I would return to that same passage, and I would memorize verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. I'd read it ten times. I'd close my Bible. I would say it ten times. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then, once I finished saying that ten times, I would say verses one and two together. And I would review verse one, and I would tack verse two onto the end, and I'm locking with that repetition verses one and two into my memory. And if you spent long enough and enough days doing that, 
you can memorize entire books of the Bible, entire sections of the Bible. And that's something that you can always be reviewing. You can always be sharing that on the metro, on your drive, in traffic, while you're doing dishes. You can always be reviewing memorized scripture. Make God the center of your commute. Make God the center of your career. Uh, Most of us are not planning to be in this city for the rest of our lives. Most of us are planning to be in a different job or a different career future in the future down the road of our lives. And a lot of factors will go into what job you take or where you move. Why wouldn't God's glory be the center of it? He's amazing and astonishing. So why wouldn't you make God the most important of those factors? One way that you could do that is, is there are countries where the gospel has never been proclaimed. And traditional missionaries cannot go there because the government doesn't want them there because the government is hostile to Christ and hostile to the gospel. But if you're a nurse or an engineer or a lawyer you could, or a teacher, you could get into those countries and you can proclaim the goodness of God and you can, you can live as a missionary in those countries. A lot of factors will go into where you choose to live and work why wouldn't God's glory and God's mission be the most important of them? Because the God we see in Genesis 1 is worthy of your career. Make God the center of your work today. Work hard as unto the Lord. And make a discipline to speak about your faith to the people around you. And that leads to another one. Make God, make God the center of your talk If God really is this amazing, and if God really is this astonishing, as we see in Genesis 1-1, why wouldn't we speak about him to everyone that we come in contact with? He's more important and more amazing and more wonderful and more central to your life than your family or your hobbies or your work or anything else that you might talk about. Why wouldn't you talk about God? And when you talk about God, if you know that the people you're speaking with aren't aren't Christians and don't know Christ and haven't been made right with God through faith, why wouldn't you press them urgently to respond? That's like knowing someone was sick and not giving them the medicine. So don't just talk about God, but press people to respond in faith. Make God the center of your eating. Every area of your life God can rule over. So make God the center of your meals. Don't just pray a quick box-checking prayer before you eat, but actually pray With every bite, find something different to thank God for with every bite. It'll slow you down, which is probably a good thing. Maybe even, this might mess you up just enough to to really make an impact on your life this week, but why don't you try praying after meals? Just so that you have to force yourself to step out of the rote routine of a box-checking religious prayer and say, you know, God, I just ate this meal and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you for providing for me. Thank you for providing such good things for me. Make God the center of your eating. Make God the center of your prayer. I heard a Christian singer say this week that if someone were to look at your prayer life, would God look like a genie in a bottle or like a treasure? Does the way you pray reflect that God is your greatest treasure, that he is amazing and astonishing? When you pray, do you fall on your face in astonishment and fear about God and who he is and what he has done? Or are you just asking him for stuff or just fulfilling a task on your religious checkbook. Make God the center of your prayer. Make God the center of your finances. Give generously so that God's glory can spread through our church and to the ends of the earth. You, we, the Bible tells us to give sacrificially and to give 
cheerfully. We ought to give so much that, that we wonder where we're going to, if we're going to be able to make ends meet. We ought to give to our church and give to one another that generously. And make God the center even of your vacation. You might say, well, I've worked hard for my vacation and I've earned it. But, but God says that I've given you that time and it belongs to me. So make God the center of it. A practical way that I've already seen many of you commit to do this is by using your vacation or using your leave from the military to go to Iceland on our mission trip uh, later this year. And that would be a great application, a great way that you can use your vacation time for God's glory. God is God. He is powerful. He is good. He is creative. He is wise. He is almighty. He is self-sufficient. He is ruling and reigning over all things. And he is worthy of our time. He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our entire lives. This God is astonishing. So let's lay our lives down in response to him. I'm going to ask Carrie and the worship team to come back up now. And as they're coming up, I want you to just think about those lists of things and think about the different areas in your life that, that God isn't the center of. For some of you, this is going to mean that you need to put your faith in Christ for the first time. You need to stop believing that you're good enough and start depending on Christ's goodness, on God's power to save you. And for some of you, if you already are a Christian, you need to think about some of the ways that we just listed or maybe something else that God's laid on your heart. Another area where God is not your center, where God is not, where, where God, Jesus' lordship is not reflected in your life. So we're just going to take a few minutes to pray for that. And then, uh, while Carrie plays, and then we're going to, we're going to close our time in prayer with another song. So let's just take a few minutes to pray silently in our seats. God, you are powerful and good and amazing. And I pray that in response to your word, we would treasure you. I pray that we would treasure you by putting our trust in you, that we would stop counting on our own righteousness to save us and start relying 100% on your son. God, I pray that we would believe that you are a wonderful, glorious treasure and that that would be reflected in every area of our lives. I pray that the membership of Pillar Church would be known as a radical group of individuals that are so obsessed with you that it changes everything about them. I pray that each and every one of these individuals that are members of Pillar or are regular attenders of Pillar would come to know that they have a responsibility to be your ambassador. And I pray that they would be so enamored with who you are that their workplaces would be transformed by your love through them. God, I pray that you would make yourself the center of so many of the new marriages in our church, that, that husbands would sacrificially and radically lay their lives down because you're a better treasure than, than, than anything else they could imagine. God, I pray that you would make yourself the center of our lives because you are so worthy of it. God, you are so good, and I pray that we would believe that. I pray that we would treasure you. I pray that we would worship you with everything that we are because you are worthy of it. It's for your name we pray. Amen.